Welcome to the Be Good Podcast, where we explore the application of behavioral economics for good in order to nudge better business and better lives. Hi and welcome to this uh, episode of Be Good, brought to you by the BV Energy Unit, a global consultancy specializing in the application of behavioral science for successful behavioral change. Every month, we get to speak with a leader in the field of behavioral science, neuroscience, or management in order to get to know more about them, their work, and its application to emerging issues. My name is Eric Singler, founder and CEO of the BV Energy Unit, and with me is my colleague, John Burkhardt. Hello, John. Hi, Eric. It's great to be joining you for this episode. I'm very excited to be introducing our guest, Dr. Lisa Feldman Barrett. Dr. Barrett is among the top 1% most cited scientists in the world for her revolutionary research in psychology and neuroscience. She's a university distinguished professor at Northeastern University with appointments at the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's also chief science officer for the Center for Law, Brain, and Behavior at Harvard University. Dr. Barrett was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship in Neuroscience in 2019, and she's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the Royal Society of Canada. She's the author of two acclaimed books, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain, and just published last year, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, awarded by Amazon among the best science books of 2020. Dr. Barrett, welcome. Happy to be with you guys this morning. Thanks a lot, Lisa, uh, for joining us today for this uh, exciting Be Good episode. Uh, we would love if you could start off by sharing with us a little bit of his story on your personal uh, journey. Sure. I certainly did not plan um, to be a neuroscientist. Like most people, my path was windy. So when I was an undergraduate, I thought I'd go to medical school. Um, I instead fell in love with research and went to graduate school really to study anxiety and depression. Um, that was my main interest. Um, so I was studying to be a clinical psychologist and, um, I kind of fell into, a mm, replication problem. I wasn't able to replicate um, a number of studies that had been published. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just not cut out to be a scientist, really. And maybe I should just really be a clinician because I was doing, you know, reasonably well, um, very well, actually, as a, in my clinical um, training. But when I looked at the data a little more carefully, I realized that, in fact, while I was not replicating published work, I was replicating myself again and again and again. I was the same findings, which were really puzzling to me. And they had to do with people's subjective experience of emotion. And this really started me on a path um, of retraining. So I've retrained then as a social psychologist and in cognitive psychology, so in beha other behavioral science fields, and then in psychophysiology, so the measurement of the cardiovascular system, the respiratory system, and so on. And then finally, neuroscience. And now I'm, I suppose, to some extent, also retraining in evolutionary and developmental neuroscience. I'm learning embryology, and I'm learning about um, comparative, uh, evolutionary comparative n neuroscience, and engineering, actually. So it's it's been a long, windy path. Um, uh, 
but very fruitful, I think, for me, not just because I'm learning all the time, but because by looking across fields, I can see certain synergies that I think otherwise I might have missed. Okay, great. Very uh, impressive. Could you tell us about any mentors that had a strong influence on you? Do you have any researcher or the people who have played an influential role in your professional career? Well, I've retrained, depending on how you count, four or five times. So I've really been very fortunate to have many, many mentors, actually. Um, I would say, um, you know, my, my dissertation advisor, Michael Ross, who's a social psychologist, um, and I are still cl close, actually. It's been more than 30 years. He's kind of like my dad, in a way. Um, but in a good way. <laughs> but um, but I would say uh, my closest collaborators are pr probably Karen Quigley, who co-directs my lab. She initially taught me psychophysiology. Um, um, she's a psychophysiologist herself. And we co-direct a lab together, which is actually really unusual in science to co-direct a lab. But we have a very large lab. And it's very it spans many, many disciplines. So um, it's very useful to have the, the two of us at the helm. I guess right now, probably my closest mentor is Barbara Finley, who is an evolutionary and developmental neuroscientist. And she's the editor of Behavioral and Brain Sciences, which is a really fantastic journal. She's probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Um, I feel like she just knows everything about everything. And, he, you know, and she, we have these conversations where she'll say, well, you know this study, and she'll be talking about some really esoteric thing. And I'll be like, no, I don't. I'm, but no, I don't actually know. Can you tell me? Um, and then I have a whole... Uh, I have a whole group of engineers who I work with at Northeastern who are really impressive because they, first of all, they have an interest in psychology and they have the patience to teach us math. So we've been meeting as a group for, there are about 10 PIs and, you know, three times or four times as many um, mentees. And we've been meeting on a biweekly basis, more or less for 10 years. And um, they're really patient and they've actually fashioned courses for my graduate students um, and postdocs, which are like rudimentary math, not rudimentary for, for um, anybody else, but for an engineer, rudimentary math so that the students and the postdocs can learn, um, you know, really learn uh, machine learning from the ground up, AI from the ground up which means I have to kind of keep pace with them. <laughs> so, um, so they've been actually wonderful as well. And why have you been interested in the specific topic of emotion? Well, I wouldn't say at this point that I am interested in the specific topic of emotion. You know, I think our work has proceeded well beyond that at this point. But I would say there are some pretty basic questions about how your brain and your body work together to create emotional events that have never been solved. And these questions are like a really good flashlight on how the brain works and makes decisions about your actions and creates your experience. So 
even though it's a, it seems like it's a narrow topic, it's actually a topic that gives you uh, a view really of very, very basic questions about brain function and behavior. Fascinating. And, and on that topic of emotions, before we get into your new book, Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain, um, we'd really like to, to revisit the, your first one, How Emotions Are Made, which has been very important in terms of the influence it's had in the research field. Your research makes a compelling case against the widely held belief that emotions live in distinct regions of the brain and that they are universally expressed and recognized. Instead, your work has shown that emotion is constructed in the moment, core systems that interact across the whole brain, aided by learning and experience over a lifetime. Could you tell us a bit more about your concept of constructed emotions? What does that mean for the layperson? Sure. I think it's easier probably to start with the older version. So imagine you're walking in a park or in the forest and you hear some leaves rustling. Um, the way that we would normally think about emotion is that uh, your brain would wait to see a snake slither out from the leaves. You'd react. So one of your circuits for your circuit for fear would trigger um, it would change your heart rate and uh, a whole uh, set of changes in your body, like a fingerprint for fear. You might make a wide-eyed gasping face, which is supposedly, some people think, the universal expression of fear. It's not, but you know that's what some people still believe. Um, and you would um, feel terror and run away. And it would all happen very fast, like a reflex, kind of. That's a bit of a caricature, but only a bit. That's, that's the general idea. Um, that's not what's happening, though. It feels that way to us. It feels really compelling to us, but that's actually not what's happening. Your brain doesn't work that way. Um, instead, what's happening is slightly more complicated, um, but really cool. Um, and that's the following, that based on what is ever is going on for you right now, what your brain is representing about what's happening in the world and what's happening in your body, it's making predictions about what's gonna happen next. And those predictions are not abstract thoughts. They are literally your brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare your action and to prepare your experience. So when you're walking with, with a friend in the woods and you hear a rustle of the leaves, your brain is figuratively speaking, asking itself, the last time I was in this situation with, you know, hearing leaves rustle in this kind of a situation, when my body was in this state, what did I do next? What did I see next? What did I feel next? And your brain will be drawing on past experiences, not just your own past experiences, but also past experiences that you've had from movies, from books, from listening to people talk. Um, and so your brain might predict that that rustle in the leaves is a snake. And if your brain predicts that, literally what that prediction looks like is your brain prepares to change your breathing and your heart rate. And uh, it might give you a flush of cortisol, not because um, cortisol is a stress hormone, but actually cortisol, its job is to get glucose into your bloodstream quickly so that you can 
move fast or do something effortful. Um, and it might prepare you to run. It actually starts to prepare the motor sequences for running. And it might prepare you to see a snake and it might prepare you to feel certain things. And then, so the this isn't the only uh, plan that your brain is preparing. It prepares really a set of a distribution, you could say, of um, of plans. And then whatever happens next, the sense data, does the snake slither out or not, is really there to either confirm the prediction or correct it. If the snake is actually present, so a snake slithers out, the plan, the motor plan is already in place. So the sense data just confirm the predictions and you run and you experience fear. Um, and I want to make it clear that the, the motor plan comes first, the experience comes second. It's really not the other way around, although we experience it as the other way around. That's not actually how it happens. Um, and what's really interesting about it is that nothing in the sensory world is, if you've predict, if your brain is predicted accurately, no information from the sensory world makes it very far into your brain. It's there just to confirm the prediction. The neurons are already firing in a way that capture that sensory input predictively. So there's no change in your brain or very little change in your brain. If, however, um, let's say uh, there is no snake, it's just the wind, right? Then you have a situation that scientists refer to as prediction error, meaning you're predicting something that's there and it isn't there. And then your brain has two options. It can either take in the new information to update its, your experience so that you can predict differently next time. And we have a really fancy name for that in science. We call it learning. That's what learning is, updating. So errors are like a teaching signal to the brain to update the brain's um, uh, capacity to predict. In which case, um, you will, your brain will make a new set of predictions um, for the next moment. The other possibility, though, is that um, you... Uh, your brain doesn't update. Uh, it doesn't learn. It just goes with its um, prediction. And you see a snake where there is no snake, or you know a gun where there is no gun, and you act accordingly. You, 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 your brain executes the predicted uh, actions. And so we don't normally think about decision-making in these terms, but this is essentially what decision-making looks like in the brain. Um, you know, oftentimes scientists are talking about like processes like valuation and like computing the value of things and so on. And, um, this is what computing the value of things look like. It's not like your brain has circuits for computing value or computing fear and then makes an action plan. The action plan is the value because you are, your brain is preparing to expend metabolic energy. And value is really, when it comes to the brain, even though in real life, you know, in our lives out in the world, we think about value in terms of money and goods and things like that. 
maybe happiness or what have you. From a biological standpoint, value is all about investments of energy and and expenditures and returns on on those investments. So it, you know, it's not like we're reducing everything to metabolism, but energy expenditure and efficient energy um, budgeting is a major major uh, ev- constraint on evolution. It's a major evolutionary concern, and it's also a major constraint on your health uh, and and um, any kind of illness that develops. So a superficial read would s- interpret that as being fairly deterministic or reactionary, but you've also written that we are the architect of our own experiences. How would you balance those two propositions and what does that say around human nature and the nature of the human experience? Well, it's not at all deterministic in any way because your brain doesn't make one plan. It makes a distribution of plans. You, your brain doesn't make one plan. It makes a bunch of plans. And each of those plans has some probability or likelihood of being correct. And your brain is basically making a guess. So it's actually preparing a distribution of plans and it's making a guess about which one is probably the right one. And a bunch of factors play into that. So your own physical state, the um, probability based on your past experiences, um, and uh, and also any kind of longer term um, plans that your brain may have or may be holding. So for example, um, what your brain plan, what, how your brain would predict when you're flush with glucose because you've just had a big breakfast is very different than how your brain will predict potentially if you, um, uh, you know, haven't slept that night. So it's not in any way deterministic. In fact, it's quite probabilistic. And, it, and there's also some aspects of stochastic noise. So nothing is perfectly predictable. Um, nonetheless, there are some things that you can do and that you do do to nudge yourself in one direction or another without realizing it. You know, so for example, to be the architect of your experience means there are some things that you have control over, but you have to think about control in the longer, in, in like with a wider window than just in the present moment, because you have a predicting brain. You're, what you experience right now is cultivating your past. It's cultivating a past that your brain will use in the future to create your present. What you learn and what you experience today, this moment, becomes part of the storehouse of knowledge that your brain can use to predict and guide your actions and create your experience in the future. So, changing how you feel or what you want to do, or what you do right in the moment is hard. But investing a little energy to create new experiences for yourself, it's kind of like exercise. You know, you're investing energy in the present to learn something new, but what you're really doing is kind of teaching your brain. You're seeding your brain to predict differently in the future, automatically in the future. It's like driving, you know, if you cultivate, you know, five minutes of awe every day, for a year, your brain will get really good at automatically making awe when you need a moment of awe when you need it. And you can just switch into it when you need it without with very, very little effort. Um, There are lots and lots of examples of this, I would say. So 
control isn't about just inhibiting, you know, control is never about inhibiting a reactionary response that is like, like a reflex. That's just not how your brain works. But your brain is issuing automatically predictions. And if you want to counter those predictions in any time, that requires a little bit of effort. It's hard to do in the moment. It's much easier if you architect your life in a way that gives you optimal experiences so that when the chips are down, you can, your brain will be predicting well, and you can just let it kind of go on autopilot, and there's no need for, for learning, for correction. Learning is expensive metabolically. Learning takes time usually. And um, in the moment, it's, in the, you know, when the chips are down and, and something is really at stake, it's really hard to correct your um, prediction sometimes. So it's better to equip yourself, equip your brain to do it really flexibly. And I, I, I'm really intrigued at your notion, uh, your comparison to driving and the repetition and practice around uh, adoption of a new behavior, new operating mode, let's say. Um, are there specific exercises? Are there specific um, repetitions that uh, our listeners could do to help them gain tighter control over their emotions? Or is it mostly just a matter of active listening and and being uh, intentional about your predictions along the way? Oh, I know there are definitely things that you can do. I mean, first of all, I have to say, we haven't really talked about, you know, there are some details that are in how emotions are made and a little bit in seven and a half lessons that we haven't really talked about. Um, but some really basic things that you can do I'm going to sound like a mother now, and I am a mother, but I'm now speaking to you as a neuroscientist. Sleep, get enough sleep, eat healthily, exercise every day. Don't be sedentary. I mean, as we all sit here, you know, all the time on Zoom, um, don't be sedentary. Try really hard not to be uh, sedentary uh, uh, throughout the day. Make sure you get outside, take a walk every day or something. These things are actually really, really important to managing um, your emotions, it turns out, and in, in a somewhat comp complicated way, but they are really important. Actually, sometimes when people ask me, what's the most important thing I can do to regulate my emotions? My answer is get enough sleep, actually. And I frankly, I wish I had known that, you know, 25 years ago. Um, <clears throat> um, but there are other things that you can do. For, for example, um, you can expose yourself to new experiences, cultivate new experiences for yourself. Um, this is actually, there's really good evidence that the more you know about emotion, the more knowledge you have about emotion, not just emotion categories in your culture, but emotion categories in other cultures. Um, the more you know, the better, the more flexible your brain will be at creating the action plans that are suitable for the situation that you're in, because your brain, you know, anger, sadness, fear, these are, these categories are not, there's not one action plan associated with fear or anger or sadness. There's a whole repertoire that you've learned throughout your life. The bigger that repertoire is, the better off you'll be. And in fact, it's not just the happier you'll be. Um, it's not just that you'll make better decisions. It's that you'll actually be healthier. And if you get sick, you'll recover from illness faster. Now, 
if you had told me 25 years ago when I discovered this concept of emotional granularity that you can, when you, you, you sort of instruct your brain to, or give yourself the opportunity to learn, um, about, um, many, um, different ways of be, of, of being in the world, like many different emotional ways of being in the world, that this would actually have a benefit to how quickly you recover from cancer or how likely you are to develop heart disease. I'm not sure I would have believed it really. Cause I didn't at that point really understand what the brain mechanisms were. And I didn't understand what, but it's really obvious now to me that this is the case and the data are not surprising anymore to me that, um, you know, Emotional granularity is not a cure-all, but the more flexibility you build into your brain, um, the the better off you're going to be, the better your decisions will be, and the healthier you'll be, and the easier it will be for you um, to manage your emotional life. Thank you. Dr. Barrett, now we would like to speak about seven and a half lessons about the brain. It's only 126 pages if we don't consider the appendix. But we do believe at the BV Energy Unit that it is a fundamental book that everybody should read, uh, as it is not only absolutely uh, insightful, but also because it is written in a beautiful, very clear, and I have to say, even funny way. Uh, so first, congrats. Could you tell us more about why you decided to write it and what is your purpose with this book? You know, with most things, when it comes to decisions, as you know, that there isn't a single simple cause. <laughs> There's usually more than one and they're, they're kind of like a bunch of weak causes, which all um, nudge you in the same direction. And that was certainly the case with this book. So, um, I love reading essays, uh, and uh, I actually, a number of years ago, read um, a very short book of essays, a little book by Anne Fadiman called At Large and at Small, I think, uh, At Large and Small or At Large and at Small, a very small book, and I thought, I just love this book, so I wrote her a little fangirl email um, this was you know, a number of years ago. And um, I said, I, lo I love these essays. These are so interesting. And how did you learn to write this way? And anyways, she uh, was the resident, resident writer, uh, writer in residence at Yale University. And she wrote me back, surprisingly. And um, she gave me a whole reading list of essays to read. And I read them. And I thought one day, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book of at little familiar essays and um, and then I had the idea of writing them about the brain, which nobody had ever done. And, you know, there are all these really wonderful books about the brain that are like three, four, five hundred pages long. Um, I thought, well, can I could I possibly write a little book of essays that people could read in the beat, you know, in the bathtub, on the beach, uh, you know, within a like one, you know, subway stop? I mean, like, it, is that possible and still communicate something deep and interesting where people walk away with one or two kind of really cool tidbits that they could share at a dinner party, you know, when we still went to dinner parties, um, uh, or, um, you know, and could, could it be used, could these essays about the brain be used to, to encourage people to 
consider some consider some thoughts about what it means to be human, about human nature, about what it means to be human, about the kind of human that you yourself are or or want to be. And I think some of these themes were in how emotions are made. There, um, but you know, the book how emotions are made was really about emotion. But like I said, emotion is a great scientific topic to use as a flashlight for understanding basic principles about brain function and brain evolution. And so I thought a book of essays would be a fun um, way to to um, both for me, but also for the science um, to try to communicate to people, you know, and people who don't normally read books about science. You know, How Emotions Are Made is a standard popular science book. It's written to be accessible, um, but it's, you know, it's 300 pages long if you don't count the footnotes and, you know, the end notes and things like that. And and the, the almost thousand web notes that I built um, as a, you know, resource for, for readers to, if they really want to dig into the science. And I felt like, wouldn't it be cool if I could write something that would entice people who don't think of themselves as interested about science, interested in science to pick up this book and read it and really feel not just entertained, but also like they learned something and they could see kind of the, what I see, um, which is that science, science and philosophy are, are um, tools for living. And of course, you know this because this is what you do, right, at the um, BVA nudge unit. But I, I don't think everybody knows that. And I think it's a really beautiful, powerful lesson that people can use to enrich their own lives. The first Alf lesson was, uh, for me, the most surprising and amazing you say that our brain is not for thinking, but to control our body and to survive. Could you elaborate a little on this? Sure. So, of course, you do think, right? You do. You think, you feel, you see, um, you know, your brain does all kinds of miraculous things. But, um, but I sort of wondered, well, why, why do we even have a brain? Like, brains are very expensive very expensive organs. They're the most expensive organ that you have. And frankly, when you look around the world right now, it sort of seems like maybe some of our political leaders don't really have a brain. And so this really got me thinking, you know, my musings about the brainlessness of some of our leaders made me start to wonder, well, why actually, actually, why do we have a brain? What is, what's a brain good for? What is it, what's its actual function? And to answer those kinds of questions, you, 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 I mean, some questions you can't really answer. We don't really know why brains evolved. That's not really a question we can answer. But we can go back all the way to um, before the Cambrian period um, in, um, in the history of the world um, to a period called the Edicarian uh, where animals didn't have brains. And what could those animals do without brains? How did they live without brains? Some of this is speculative, but some of it's actually really well known. And some of the animals that were around at that time are still around today because the environment they live in hasn't changed very much. So they themselves haven't changed very much. So they're kind of like living fossils. 
And so we can look at those animals and we can learn something about um, what the precursors are um, of, of a brain. And like, so, so why do, you know, when did brains emerge and what were they good for? And one really important discovery and a discovery that you can see, actually, if you look at any vertebrate brain or probably any brain, but I'm, I'm more familiar with vertebrate brains. I, I don't know as much about the brains of flies and crabs and, you know, octopuses and so on, um, is that your brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body. Animals evolved brains as their bodies got bigger and their internal systems got more elaborate. So when, when you're a little sliver of an animal, you don't need a brain. You're, the insides of your body are very close to the, outside, to the skin, very close to the outside world. So, you know, gases like oxygen can seep in and wastes from your metabolic function can seep out by osmosis. And you don't really, you don't really need um, complicated internal systems to manage. But once you start requiring those, because your body's getting bigger, so you, you know, your internal organs have to develop, have to develop so that uh, you can, you know, excrete waste and circulate material and so on. That becomes complicated because you've got all these parts that have to be coordinated. And what's going to do that coordination? And so that's partly one of the reasons why scientists think this is one of the reasons why brains evolved. Brains, your brain's most important job is to regulate the systems of your body. And if we look at the anatomy of a human brain, of your brain, we can actually see that this is the case. And if anyone doesn't believe this, I would just say, what happens when your brain stops regulating your body? You, you die. And every metabolic illness that exists in a human is related to a problem with brain function, including heart disease, diabetes, and so on. Some diseases that we think of as mental, like depression, are at their basis metabolic diseases. Alzheimer's disease, which is you know where you start to lose neurons and therefore you start to lose ability, certain mental functions, is also a metabolic um, disease. So your brain's most important job is regulating the systems of your body. And everything your brain does, it does in the service of regulating your body. So you think and feel and see in the service of regulating your body. Now you don't experience, none of us experience ourselves that way. We don't experience every hug we give, every decision we make, every insult we bear as having these consequences for our bodies, um, but they do. Very surprising, but very convincing and uh, for sure uh, amazing insight. You also highlight that against, again, I would say, the classical view about a human brain with three layers, one for surviving, the lizard brain, one for feeling, the limbic system, and one for thinking, the neocortex, I would say. We only, according to you, have one brain. And you write, the trillion brain is one of the most successful and widespread errors in all science. It's really a punchline. Uh, so could you explain how the brain works, in fact? 
Sure, I absolutely can. But I need to say, it's not really according to me. It's according to, you know, about 50 years of research. Yeah, I wish I, I, wish I could take credit for, um, for this discovery, but it's, it's really not mine. Um, I'm just the, um, the conduit. Um, you know, I, some of the research on brain structure and function, I certainly have some research on brain structure and function, but it's a large, large enterprise populated by hundreds, if not thousands of scientists. And I think the way to understand your brain um, is to understand a little bit how it's structured, which helps us understand how it functions. So your brain is built from about, give or take, 128 billion neurons, little cells. It has other cells, too, that support neurons, and it's got other, you know, other parts to it, like blood vessels and things. But, you know, you've got these neurons. And these neurons, all the neurons have to talk to each other. But all your neurons can't be connected to all your other neurons. That's just too metabolically expensive. You, you, you're, you, you could never support that kind of a structure metabolically. And also, it wouldn't fit into your skull. And there's a limit on how big our brains can get. And that limit is whatever can fit through uh, the birth canal of a woman's body. So there are issues with how, how big a brain can get. And um, so how do you deal with this problem? Well, maybe there are many ways to deal with it, but what evolution fashioned um, is that, you know, not every neuron has to be connected to every other neuron. Um, instead, um, the, an analogy would be to think about how our air um, travel system uh, works in the world. You can fly from any airport anywhere in the world to any other airport anywhere else in the world, but not always by a direct flight. There are um, airports everywhere in the world, almost everywhere in the world. In fact, even without an airport, if there's just a strip of land, you can, you can take off and land there. Um, but there are also hubs. There are big airports where... Um, you know, lots of planes fly into and where from there you can get a connection to any anywhere else. So big places like, uh, you know, Charles de Gaulle is a, is a huge uh, hub or Heathrow Airport is a huge hub or O'Hare in um, Chicago is a huge hub. And so if you if I want to fly to, um, you know, Heathrow, let's say, um, I can fly direct from Boston to Heathrow, but I can also fly through O'Hare. I could fly through Newark. Um, so first of all, and, and actually some people can't fly direct, right? So basically it's, it's possible to get from one airport to another airport, either directly if it's possible or indirectly through connections, through hubs. And that also gives us another thing. It gives us flexibility. So if one direct flight is down, you can always get to where you need to go by connecting through hubs. So the, your brain works the same way. Not every neuron is connected to every other neuron, but all neurons are connected to hubs. These are, a set of, these are sets of neurons in your brain that are densely connected to one another, and they're densely connected to all the peripheral neurons in the brain. So brains, neurons are, you know, most of them are connected locally. There's local traffic. They talk to each other, but all of them talk to these hubs. 
And these hubs, it turns out, are kind of like the backbone of communication in your brain, just like airport hubs are really the backbone of global air travel in the world. And when a hub goes down, there's a big disruption. That's true for air travel. It's also true for your brain. So, um, and the really another really interesting thing is that many of these hubs are really um, important to regulating your body, which I, is not an accident. And you talk about uh, the brain as a network. Yes, it's a network that's knit together by these um, this arrangement of um, connections, basically. Um, there are other ways that uh, neurons coordinate themselves. It turns out, um, uh, you know, they the that's a, probably a little more complicated than what we need to get into here. But um, but I would say, um, you know. If you grow a bunch of neurons in a dish, they start to communicate with each other and coordinate with each other. <laughs> they start to oscillate in their um, in their uh, neural in their electrical firing just by placing them in proximity to one another. Neurons function together as a whole, so you can think about your brain as one structure of you know billions of neurons which continually although the 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 anatomy stays relatively stable for a given moment in time the ease with which the neurons are passing information back and forth is changing based on the chemicals that the brain is bathed in and so your single brain structure can take on trillions of different patterns those patterns actually are your predictions and your experiences and, you know, dictate your actions. So those are your mind, basically, um, those, those trillions of patterns in that one complex structure. Mm -hmm. There is also something which is absolutely uh, amazing and I think uh, fundamental is uh, the idea of the brain fundamentally impacted by the environment. So it's not only a network. It seems that it is also a network with the environment to create a, a reality. Yeah, so that's, I mean, the really, really interesting thing here is that... Um, You know, sometimes people debate about whether genes alone are sufficient to, um, uh, you know, create your brain as it, it exists, or, um, uh, you know, so it, is it, or, or, right, or is it all learning? So this is like the famous kind of nature versus nurture debate. And it's a really mistaken way of thinking about things. Because we have the kinds of genes, we have the kind of nature that requires nurture. Your brain, my brain, everybody's brain wires itself to the world that you're in. So evolution doesn't provide you with everything you need to have a mind. Your brain, your evolution provides you with genes that turn on and off and are modulated by the environment that you're in. And your brain literally 
picks up and learns the, the regularities in the world that you're in, both the physical regularities and the social regularities. So in order for your brain to develop normally as an infant, you know, for example, when you're born, you know, light from the world has to strike uh, the, your retina, which is the, you know, the cells at the back of your eye, which then makes that information makes its way to your brain. And if that doesn't happen in the first couple of months of life, you will not learn to see and you will never learn to see, right? That, that stimulation is required for um, your brain to finish itself the, to be able to see. Similarly, when a baby is born, right when a baby's born, that baby's gut, the intestines are free of all bacteria. No bacteria, no, you don't have a microbiome when you're born. You get that microbiome as you are born, as you pass through the, your, the vagina of your mother, as you're being born, the baby breathes in, takes in those bacteria that are necessary for a normal functioning gut. And if you don't get that, you won't thrive, you'll die. Um, so there are lots of ways in which the physical world has to impact our brains and bodies for them to develop normally. It's what biologists call expectable input. It's like your neurons, I'm sorry, excuse me, your genes are expecting uh, certain inputs in order for them to, for, for everything to function well. The thing is for humans, there's also a lot of social input that's required to build a brain and so that you have a, a neurotypical mind. Um, and that includes things like eye contact. Um, it includes things like speaking to your baby, cuddling your baby, singing to your baby. Of course, you know, different people do it different ways and not everybody, you know, in a, there are lots of different cultural ways to raise babies. But the fact is some kind of social input is required um, for a human brain to develop in a neurotypical, along a neurotypical trajectory. Um, brains wire themselves to their world. And we curate that world for our children, but also for each other. And there are some really important lessons in that, I think. Mm -hmm. It is uh, why you mentioned there is not uh, human nature, but human nature with a S, meaning we are all unique because of this link with the uh, this specific link with the uh, environment that we live. Yes, exactly. There is no there is no single um, psychological feature of the mind or set of features that are universal to all humans. Not one. So you could say, well, there are some features that most people have, but not, not everybody has, there's no single feature that everybody has. Um, and that's because there are many different cultures in this world. So even things like thoughts and feelings, cognitions and emotions, this is a very Western way. These are very Western mental events. Not everybody in the world it has experiences that are described this way. Now, it's really hard for us to understand because that's how our brains are wired. Our brains are wired for thoughts. And, but, you know, um, so everybody has a brain that predicts 
a neurotypical brain. If you have a neurotypical brain and you're human, your brain is predictive. It uses the past in order to, to, to predict the future, which becomes the present. That's, that's universal. And everyone, you know, everyone has concepts um, because your brain is making concepts. That's what predictions are really. They're, they're, they're concepts. They're taking past experience, fashioning them momentarily into concepts. Everybody has concepts, but not everybody has the same concepts. And so not a, you can have a, a kind of a common brain plan, but the minds that you get out of that brain plan are, are, can be really, really different. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Maybe a, a final word before uh, John um, is, uh, will ask two uh, more concrete uh, questions. Um, what is the final big idea from uh, this new book that you would like our listener to recall about the brain, maybe regarding our free will? Well, you know, free will is a topic that's been debated for thousands of years. So uh, we're not going to resolve anything dramatically, you know, in a little book of seven essays, seven and a half essays. But I will say this. You're always, every experience you have contributes to your past which is a way of charting your future. So what you learn today becomes a past experience that your brain will use to predict what you should do next to keep yourself alive and well. And there's a certain degree of power in understanding that and also responsibility. And on the flip side, I would say, the experiences and actions that you have, mainly it's the actions that you have, the things that you do, don't just influence your predictions. They don't just wire your brain in a particular way. They cultivate the world that is impacting the wiring of other people's brains too. So even though we live in a very, we live in a culture that, values individual rights and freedoms. We have socially dependent nervous systems. And we, that means that we like it or not, we have some responsibility to the people around us for, we have some responsibility for their well-being too. It, this is a message people don't really like to talk about, but not talking about it doesn't make the issue go away. And I think that's the really the thing to um, the thing to really take away from this book is that given the kind of brain that you have, you have more control, but also more responsibility. Um, and that some people might not like that, but I personally think it's liberating, frankly. Um, and so, um, you know, obviously, there's a lot more in the book. Um, but I think in some ways that's the, mo that's the lesson I think that's resonating with people right now that um, people are finding really useful right now in this particular moment in time. 
So coming off that block, what I would like to ask about is your thoughts on the interaction of astrocytic networks with neuronal networks in terms of global decision-making states. But um, for the purposes of our listeners, um, what we'd really like to get are some perspectives around concrete applications around your, your research and your findings and your work. Um, so first regarding potential applications in the workplace, but also around the emerging, well, ongoing at this point, really, COVID crisis. So at BVA Nudge Unit, we're working at helping organizations to apply learnings from science, particularly behavioral science and neuroscience, to reinforce collective performance and individual well-being. Um, regarding neuroscience and specifically your work, do you think some insights could be helpful for a leader trying to make better decisions or to create a better work environment? Well, absolutely. And I can say this as a scientist, and I can also say this as a director of a lab, which is sort of like a small business. You know, I have 25 full-time scientists working for me and about 100 undergraduate students at any given point in time. So, yeah, I do. And the research, you know this, the research shows really clearly. If you look, for example, at like what predicts um, increased job performance, particularly in, in workplaces that involve innovation or creativity, it's really a set of really interesting things. It's sleep, hydration, the amount of light people are exposed to. It's all these things that are involved in keeping your brain, making it easy for your brain to regulate your body. All, what, we, what I refer to, you know, we didn't have a chance to talk about the metaphor of body budgeting, but the, um, uh, basically your brain's most important job is regulating your body, which I describe as running a budget for your body. So those things actually matter a lot to job performance. So work-life balance matters a lot to job performance, but so do things like interpersonal trust, trust in your managers, predictability. These are I mean, for example, my husband works for a company that when COVID, you know, uh, struck, um, immediately allowed people to work at home for basically told them for a year and a half, you're going to be working at home. Why did they do that? For predictability. Because unpredictability, when you can't predict, is hard on your nervous system. It's expensive. If you work with people that you can't trust or that you can't predict what they're going to do or you don't feel safe with them, that is hard on your nervous system. You experience it as stress, but it's metabolically challenging. And if you're using your metabolic resources there, you can't be using them for, you know, for the really important work that you have to do for your job. So I'm not saying we all have to be nice to each other all the time and, you know, uh, you know, and that we can never criticize each other and that we can never, but I am saying that there are these things that we can do to make it easier for people to um, uh, to free up the metabolic resources to um, focus on their job. And those are things that involve work-life balance, making sure that people have, you know, snacks, water, you know, light, a little bit of control over their own environments, and making sure that there's a reasonable amount of trust both within teams and also with, um, with uh, you know, bosses, between bosses and, and uh, mentees. That, those, these kinds of things actually are, are major predictors of, of performance. Um, in, in that, at least that's what the research shows very clearly. Maybe a final question of uh, your perspectives on the future of uh, neuroscience. Well, 
you know, it's very hard to predict what um, the future of neuroscience is going to look like, obviously. But I would say for a really long time, scientists have asked questions about the brain that begin with where, where in the brain is decision-making, which neurons in the brain are important for thinking? What is the circuit for fear? These are all questions about where things are happening, but where things are happening, it doesn't tell you how things are happening. Um, and um, so one thing we know, I think one thing that seems really clear is that everything you see and hear and feel and, and think and do involves your whole brain. Um, so it's not one part of your brain that sees and another part of your brain that hears. And that's just not what the evidence shows again and again and again. Um, so instead of looking for dedicated brain parts for particular psychological functions, we should be asking, how is the brain working? By what computations is the brain in conversation with the body and the outside world? By what computations is your brain constructing creating um, your uh, actions and your experiences. And there are major efforts in that direction in neuroscience at this time. And I think eventually, hopefully, people will stop asking the really simple, I would say simplistic, where questions, because um, they they just haven't proven fruitful, really. Thanks a lot, uh, Dr. Barrett. Uh, maybe is there anything you would like to leave our listener with, uh, perhaps uh, where uh, they can find out more about you and your work? Yes, they can find out more uh, at my website, lisafeldmanbarrett.com, all one word, my whole name, .com. This website has information about my books, but more importantly, it also has information about, it, it posts, um, articles I've written um, for magazines and for newspapers. And there are a bunch of podcasts that I've appeared on that um, uh, like this one will be, you know, a link will be there eventually. Um, there are um, um, vi videos of lectures that I've given and so on. All that material is for free. Um, so people can go to lisafeldmanbarrett.com and find out um, more information there. Be Good, a podcast by the BVA Nudge Unit.